Hey everyone, welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. As always, my focus is on exploring the intersection of technology and business by having conversations with the most forward-thinking leaders. Throughout my career, I've covered everything from massive parallel processing to advanced robotics, but what truly inspires me are the stories of innovation and transformation. Today, you're going to hear a great conversation I had with Sonia Kastner, founder and CEO of Pano AI. Her company brings together technologies such as imaging, cloud computing, AI, and yes, connectivity to provide a very important service, early detection of forest fires. As you'll hear, Pano AI partners with customers to deliver data needed to identify and respond to forest fires. But before I could geek out about Pano AI's approach in technology, I wanted to learn more about Sonia's journey. Sonia, it is a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to The Restless Ones. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you. So can you kind of give me sort of a story of your journey up to now, really hitting the highlights? Absolutely. I've always worked at the intersection of business, technology, and government. Early in my career, I was a young activist working on political campaigns. I also worked in the New York City government under Michael Bloomberg. And I love the impact that you can have in the public sector, but I also love the innovation and speed and nimbleness you can have in the private sector. And in 2007, I decided to move out to California and get involved in the green energy industry, which was a booming sector in venture capital back then. I went to business school at Stanford. I joined one of the many venture-backed solar startups at the time. And I really hoped to spend my entire career working on technologies that would prevent climate change. And sadly, fast forward 15 years, I think everyone would agree we have not prevented climate change. You know, climate change is now very much clearly all around us. We're living it every day. And natural disasters are one of the ways we're feeling the effects of climate change first. And these natural disasters, people are starting to refer to them as climate disasters. You know, floods, hurricanes, wildfires, mudslides, extreme heat, extreme cold, tornadoes. They're really serving as a wake-up call to humanity that climate change is here. Since then, I've been working in supply chain manufacturing at companies like Nest, where I actually worked on the Nest Cam in 2014, one of the first AI cameras. And in 2018, 2019, I was thinking about ways that I could apply the technology that I was familiar with coming from Silicon Valley, coming from Internet of Things, to help with tackling natural disasters and see if we could make these natural disasters less harmful. And as I started to do research, the good news I found was actually there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. The natural disaster industry had not seen a lot of innovation for decades. And there was tremendous hunger from emergency managers, such as fire agencies, such as power utility emergency managers. They were asking, send us cameras, send us drones, send us satellite technology, artificial intelligence, send us better software tools, help us use mobile phones better, because we need technology as a force multiplier to help us tackle this growing threat. And we looked around, there were very few companies that had been founded out of Silicon Valley building tools for this industry, and we decided to answer the call. And that was the story behind Pano. Wow. And speaking of Internet of Things, since I have you on here, I am somewhat curious as to 
what your first exposure to that concept was, because it's rare that I talk with someone who is so deeply involved in the Internet of Things. Absolutely. So I got involved in the Internet of Things industry early on. I had been working in clean tech, which went through a boom bust cycle and found myself needing to find another industry to work in. And I started hearing about Internet of Things, how internet connectivity like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and cellular technologies were going to move from just being in your phone and computer into other types of devices. And really, IoT, the theme of IoT has always been gathering data that could be used for AI. IoT and AI have actually always been coupled. My first IoT job was at a company called Whistle, where we were making a Fitbit for dogs. (laughs) And we thought it was going to be an easy product to make because there was already a Fitbit for humans. But it turns out a Fitbit for dogs came with its own new challenges. (laughs) For example, dogs don't carry phones. So Fitbit had Bluetooth to just send the data back to your phone, but your dog was home without a phone. So we actually had to put Wi-Fi into this dog collar device. And in hindsight, it turns out to be one of the first IoT devices that had miniaturized Wi-Fi. I think we were one of the first users of the Atheros Qualcomm chip, and it was hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very hard. But we shipped it in 15 months, and it was a great introduction to the world of IoT, and that was where I spent my career for the next 10 years. Excellent. I love that story. Sonia, I'm curious, because before you founded Pano, you were an angel investor, And you were specifically focusing on startups that were centered around hardware, which to me is mind-blowing because I think anyone who's ever been in tech knows hardware is hard. It is hard to get that right. It's a long development cycle. What kind of drove you in that direction to look for companies that you could help establish and support that were in the hardware space? I love working in hardware, and that's what we do here at Pano as well. There are certain things that make hardware harder, but if you know how to do them, then it becomes a great moat. And I think every startup needs to find a moat. I think there was a great article from one of the Y Combinator founders that every startup needs its schlep, <laughs> right? And if there's no schlep, then there's going to be too much competition and it's not going to be a good business. You just have to pick what your schlep is going to be. So the schlep of hardware is a couple of things. First of all, in a hardware company, much more of the work you need to do is done with third parties, with other companies, not within the own walls of your company, not by employees. So your engineers are mainly going out and selecting technology from third-party companies. And they have to then work with those vendors. They have to work with contract manufacturers. So it's a team sport outside of your company. It's also much more of a team sport within the company. There's much more interdependencies between mechanical engineers and electrical engineers than necessarily between discrete software engineers. So that makes it challenging. It's much harder to change scope of a hardware product once you've started. So you have less flexibility there. And you also have more specialists within your team. So the people on your team are not fungible. So you've fixed your scope. You often have a hard deadline, like you're shipping for Christmas. In our case at Pano, we're shipping for fire season. And things go wrong a lot in hardware. And you have to sprint and recover. I think it tends to be a good field for people who are a bit of adrenaline junkies, (laughs) where you you make really, really careful plans, and then everything still goes wrong, and you have to figure out how to react. My thinking is that actually is pretty similar to disaster management. And that's actually part of also what drew me into getting into the disaster management industry as well. Wow. Great insight. 
And we've already alluded to the fact that Pano is in hardware space, that Pano relies a lot on hardware. Can you talk a bit about the types of hardware Pano AI is using in order to detect forest fires? What actually is the technology that's being used out in the field? Yeah, I can describe the hardware and maybe how the whole system works as well. So Pano's solution is a solution for detecting and alerting on new fire ignitions within minutes and pushing out alerts that come with time-lapse video of the fire growing and location information, GPS coordinates, so that first responders can see the fire, make an assessment about what kind of response is necessary, share the fire information with each other over text and email, and then create a coordinated, aggressive response to send helicopters, planes, bulldozers, go nip that fire in the butt. It's actually modeled after a Nest Cam or a Ring doorbell. Very, very similar idea. From a user's perspective, it's almost the same as a Nest Cam or a Ring doorbell that says, somebody's stealing your package, here's a video. And actually, I think it's a big part of why the product's been so popular and being widely adopted, because the customers actually are used to this concept. To the customer, it seems really simple. Behind the scenes, the whole system is incredibly complicated. <laughs> so it starts with a piece of equipment that we design and manufacture called a pano station. This includes about 40 components, including two high-definition security cameras. These are off-the-shelf, top-of-the-line, six-megapixel security cameras designed for ruggedized environments and about 40 other components. We assemble them in our factory in San Francisco. The systems also include an edge computer, which has logic on how we control the cameras. We also include networking equipment, so we can send the data up to the cloud over cellular, broadband connectivity. We have power management. Sometimes we need to include a backup battery. Sometimes we need to include solar panels. Every site is a little bit different. So it's a configure-to-order supply chain, which is not for the faint of heart. And we mount these systems typically on existing structures like cell towers, water tanks, government communications towers, sometimes even private homes or chairlifts at a ski resort. We get really creative on where to put these. And we've actually found 5G to be a really great technology for us. One of our investors is T-Mobile, and they've been a phenomenal partner in terms of allowing us to migrate from 4G to 5G. And we're one of the first industrial users of 5G technology, which has further range into the forest and higher performance than 4G. So once we mount these systems, we rotate the cameras 360 degrees every minute, and we take 10 frames with each rotation. And we send this up to the cloud. We put these images through a computer vision deep learning algorithm, and it draws bounding boxes on the images where it thinks there's smoke. Each one of these bounding boxes is reviewed by a human analyst in our Pano Intelligence Center to make sure that it's really truly smoke. This is called human-in-the-loop AI. It's actually a very common approach with computer vision AI because it's so easy for a human to use the image as ground truth to be sure. And that way, when we trigger an alert out to our customer, we have an almost perfect signal-to-noise ratio. So the customers know when they get an alert from Pano, this is going to be smoke, and I don't have to worry about being spammed. Then the customers get all the other rich information they need to go control the fire. I'm glad you brought up the human loop element because anyone who's followed any sort of AI, even things like image recognition, you realize that there are outlier cases where I think of it as like paradelia, where you're looking up at the sky and you see a cloud and it is in the shape of something. And as a person, you know, that's not actually the thing. It's not really a cat up in the sky. It just looks like one. But to an image recognition algorithm, it might 
fool it into thinking it's a cat. And so having that human element to be that step before sending messages out, before you start to see agencies commit resources toward going to a potentially remote location that is not easy to get to, which could be taking their attention away from other very real, very present emergencies. Yeah, absolutely. And the good news is cameras as an AI sensor are really phenomenal. And that's actually a core part of Pano's long-term vision and strategy is we've decided to specialize in computer vision AI. We just hired an amazing VP of engineering. He has a PhD in computer vision. And we brought on a leader with computer vision expertise to lead our engineering effort because we think that camera sensors are going to be the most important for emergency management, whether those cameras are stationary, like our first product, or whether those cameras are on a drone or satellites. With camera data, you can run your algorithm and you do object detection to detect the signal you're trying to detect, but you can also have a human verify in real time because the camera data is ground truth. You can combine artificial intelligence and human intelligence together in real time with camera data beautifully. And so that makes it, I think, much more useful and much more powerful. You also mentioned 5G connectivity, which is obviously something we really like to talk about on this show. And it's interesting because you were bringing up a different sort of flavor of 5G than what I often talk about. I'm often talking about the ultra-high-frequency 5G, where you have very high throughput, very low latency. But for those who do not know, there are other bands of 5G. And as you were alluding, one of those bands is one where you are able to get much further broadcast range than you would with other cellular technologies. So you mentioned about the partnership with T-Mobile. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how 5G has played a part in Pano AI's operation? Yes, absolutely. So we've been partnering with T-Mobile for over a year now. I think we were in the 2022 class of the 5G Open Innovation Lab, and they helped facilitate a partnership with T-Mobile over a year ago. And that has been a really successful partnership. T-Mobile helped us with technical support that allowed us to migrate from 4G to 5G sooner than almost any other industrial application. And This has really been terrific for us, and I think it's just going to continue to be more powerful over time as we unlock more and more features that take advantage of the performance of 5G. So the benefits for our system of 5G are, first of all, the range, as you referred to. We're installing our pano stations on mountaintop locations, typically at the wildland urban interface or deep in the forest. That's where you need to have wildfire cameras. You don't need to have wildfire cameras right in downtown. And sometimes our locations are not very close to a cell tower. They can be far from a cell tower. We could be mounting on an abandoned Forest Service lookout tower that's miles into the forest. So the fact that 5G provides for further range from the cell tower means that we might be able to use cellular in a location where otherwise cellular would not be an option. Second of all, the latency and the broadcast and the upload speeds and the bandwidth are actually very beneficial for us as well. I mean, remember, we're an upload application, not a download application. In terms of latency, this really comes into play when we're using the cameras in optical zoom mode. So our standard operating mode is patrol mode. We're rotating the cameras one rotation per minute, scanning the landscape, looking for smoke. But once we find smoke, then either Pano or our customers will take one of those two cameras out of rotation and zoom in 
on the smoke using the very powerful optical zoom capabilities of the camera. And this actually provides much richer visual information of what's going on with the fire. It allows the fire agencies to much more clearly see road access, to see which way the wind is blowing, to see structures nearby, and can really have a huge impact on firefighter safety. And the challenge is, as you're going to navigate the camera, if you're on a 4G connection, you have to wait to send the instructions out to the camera. And it can be a nuisance and slow down the navigation and take you longer to find the fire and zoom in to where you want to get to. It's not the same as performing open heart surgery, but the latency really will be a great advantage. And then finally, in terms of the upload bandwidth, these cameras are capable of 30 frame per second video. But on 4G, we're typically uploading about 10 frames a minute. Depending on the 4G connection, we can go a little bit above that, but with 5G, we can go to the full 30 frame per second video, which again, when you're staring at a fire, you want all the visual information you can get. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, can you tell me a little bit more about the technologies that are on the back end? I'm assuming that you have a mixture of cloud computing and on-premises compute that are processing all these images. Can you kind of give us a big picture of how that works? Sure. I love the theme that a technology is developed by one industry and then other sectors find ways to harvest that technology and use it in new ways. So at Pano, we're harnessing many technologies that were developed for other industries. 5G is a perfect example, was developed primarily for cell phone users, but we're using it for wildfire detection. The AI that we use was really primarily developed for the self-driving car industry, and we're harnessing that for fire detection. Satellite technology is really critical for us. We're using geostationary satellite data that was developed by NOAA, the National Weather Service. Those have been very useful as a supplemental detection method using thermal sensors. We're harnessing cloud tools. I mean, we ingest massive amounts of data. If we were not able to harness scalable cloud technologies and Kubernetes, there's no way we could do what we're doing today. We use SaaS tools like Twilio to push out our notifications in scalable fashion. So there's dozens of modern-day technologies that were developed over the past 10 years that are included in our solution that our customers are totally unaware of, don't have to think about. That's our job is to go shop for the best technologies like 5G and bring them to our customers as soon as they become readily available. I love that explanation as well. It is another inspiring approach to this. And the idea of using that specifically for a climate-oriented task here, where we know for a fact that we're going to have more of these climate events. It's interesting to me about your business, because when I first heard about what Pano does, to me, it was immediately one of those things where I thought, oh, that sounds like something that you would think of as an adjunct to a government agency, for example. Can you talk a bit about what thinking went into making it a business? How did that sort of blossom? So it absolutely is a service that should be provided by government agencies. So you're absolutely right there. And then government agencies typically select vendors by running an RFP, and that's how they select the vendors that then deliver the government services that you're used to. And actually, we've been very impressed with the rigor that government agencies have used when selecting vendors. Excellent. Can you talk a bit about sort of the skills that are needed for a business leader who wants to work closely with governments? What sort of skill set does that person need and what sort of expectations should they have? 
Yeah. So I had worked in government, but selling into government was not my skill set. The first person who joined our team, I'm very fortunate, is our chief commercial officer, Arvind Satyam. And he did have 10 years of experience selling into government. He had been working at Cisco for many years. And for the past 10 of those years, he was one of the leaders of their government IoT business, where he sold million-dollar deals into cities like the city of Barcelona that led to wiring up the entire city to be a smart city with smart street lamps and smart parking meters, smart trash cans. And so he is exceptional at learning how to navigate the challenges of selling into government buyers. So I would say that selling into government, we have found to be more difficult than selling into any other segment. So you need both sellers and you also need regulatory. We have regulatory advisors as well. But I will also say And a really important part of Pano's business success has been that we don't only sell to government. So our business model is that we deploy in a region and we sell subscriptions to multiple types of entities. So we sell to government agencies, city, county, state, federal, but we also sell to power utilities. They're one of our largest customer segments. They have a lot of wildfire risk. Their power lines run through high fire risk areas. And so they're really focused on protecting their assets. We also sell to other property owners like ski resorts, the forestry industry, other private landowners, real estate developers. So it's been really important as a venture-backed company that we have a mixture of public sector and private sector customers in order to meet the business objectives. And also, Actually, we found these two types of buyers to be complementary. We found that our private sector customers appreciate the fact that we also have a public sector business. In fact, we've done multiple deals where we've actually signed up both a public sector and a private sector customer at the same time. For example, in the Telluride area, we signed up the Telluride Fire Department and San Miguel Power Company as well at the same time for the pilot. This is called a public-private partnership And both parties feel great about this collaboration. And it's because the fire agency feels great that the utility is participating and contributing to support protecting their assets. And the power utilities know that if the fire agencies are participating as customers, that they're going to use this product because the enterprise customers can't suppress the fire on their own. The end users of the product are the fire agencies. It's really interesting. It also makes me think of cases where there are issues with power utilities and their close association with fires. I'm reminded of rolling brownouts that were needed in times of high winds, for example, where there was a concern that utility lines could potentially cause fires. And potentially down the line, a company like Pano could end up delivering lots of information that could lead to things like infrastructure overhaul. Like, it's interesting to me how your role could expand beyond the immediate detection of fires, but also ultimately contribute to improving infrastructure in places that need it. And it's because you're able to gather the information that's necessary before anyone can make those kinds of decisions. Yes, you're spot on. I mean, once again, I think you know our long-term vision better than we do. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. You know, our first solution at Pano is focused on delivering real-time actionable intelligence during the response phase of an incident. And by the way, I should also mention our customers use our solution during fire season for enabling rapid suppression of fires, but they also use our solution in the rainy season for enabling safer and more manageable controlled burning. 
in fire season, our solution is used for pushing out real-time actionable information to help with suppression, and that's called the response phase of a natural disaster. But there's three other phases of natural disaster management. There's the recovery phase, there's the mitigation phase, which is hardening your system, which would be, for example, decisions around burying power lines or relocating assets. For example, making a decision that you're going to change your deck material to make it non-flammable. That would all be part of mitigation. And then there's preparedness, which is, okay, making sure you have your evacuation routes planned out, making sure you have a way to contact people, making sure you have shelters with enough supplies. That's all preparedness. And then all of that feeds back into the response and the cycle continues. To your point, the data that we are creating, we create in our tool, after we push out an incident, that data doesn't just go away. We've created an archive of all of these fire incidents that we've alerted on. So we have a very accurate record of exactly where and when the fire started. And we ingest third-party data as well that allows us to have data on how that fire was responded to. And we ingest all of that into our database, and we now have a treasure trove of fire activity, fire response all over the country. And as our deployments increase, that data is just growing and growing. And when I think about the mission of Pano and the impact that we can have, I see it as twofold. One impact we can have is the impact of improving real-time response and lessening the harm of wildfires in the immediate term. But I believe that we can have additional impact by improving hardening decisions there's going to be trillions of dollars of investment made to harden our infrastructure and rebuild our cities, rebuild our transportation in the face of climate change. It's going to cost billions of dollars to bury power lines, to create microgrids. That's going to take decades. And we're going to need to spend billions for new helicopters and new planes. How are we going to decide how to prioritize those investments and which investments are needed and which ones are not needed? All of that needs data. There's no data today. There's a federal agency that created a national fire incident database, and they created a database with 96 fields that should be populated for every fire incident. And when you look at the database, only two of the fields are populated. One field is, when was the fire called in, and how many acres was it when it was contained? And even those two fields are suspect, right? How do we know if that's really accurate information? But with Pano's technology, you can absolutely get that information accurately. And many, many more of those 96 fields can be populated as well. And data can really be an enabler for us to adapt to climate change. Sonia, you've talked about so much here with like the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, the era of big data, the ability for us to be able to do something meaningful with that data. I think a lot of these things all started to converge in a really exciting way around the same time. The future you're describing is one that I expect we're going to see lots of other businesses focus on. I hope to see more organizations take that approach of how can we leverage the massive amounts of information we collect in ways that have a real positive outcome in the real world? Absolutely. You're spot on. I think there's a hopeful message here, which is that we as humanity have been working on trying to find solutions to slow down or reverse climate change for decades. And I think many of those I'm optimistic about. And I think human innovation will find a way to reverse climate change, but it's going to take decades. There has been almost no innovation that has gone into adaptation to climate change. And as a result, what that means is that there's so much low-hanging fruit. We have so many technology tools that are perfectly suited to 
help cope with the effects of climate change. Sensors, drones, satellites, 5G, big data, software tools, and the entrepreneurship wave of the climate adaptation field is just beginning. Pano is one of the first companies in this field, and we're hoping to blaze a trail here, and we're hoping other entrepreneurs will see that technology really can make climate change less harmful, and that we can save lives, we can save homes, we can save trees, we can save animal life. Let's put our heads together and think about ways that we can innovate to lessen the harms of climate change that's already here today. I had a couple more questions to ask Sonia before I could let her go. Well, next up, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? A professor of mine in college, senior year, I was taking a behavioral economics class. And he was explaining that people do not do a good job of intuitively understanding probabilities. So people often are afraid of losing something, even if it's a low, you know, small amount or a low risk of losing. People are grasped to what they have. They don't want to lose something. They buy lottery tickets because they think they have a chance of winning something big. So what he encouraged us is take small positive expected value risks in life. And I think that was really good advice. I think so too. Yeah, I like that a lot. Generally speaking, humans are really bad at assessing risk unless we put a lot of effort toward it, I find. Yeah. What does the term restless ones mean to you? (laughs) You know, I love the name of this podcast, The Restless Ones. And it made me think of not being satisfied with accepting the world for how it is, but saying, I don't like how the world is today. I think the world should be different and I'm going to go do something about it. Excellent. I couldn't agree more. Thanks again to Sonia Kastner of Pano AI for talking with us on The Restless Ones. Sonia's story reminded me that innovation isn't restricted to inventing the next light bulb. Innovation can involve finding a new way to use that light bulb to tackle tough problems. Taking advantage of advancements in technologies ranging from IoT deployments, image capture and artificial intelligence, big data analysis, and yes, advanced wireless technologies makes Pano AI a true pioneer. Moreover, I think Sonia's story reminds us that in the face of huge challenges, there is opportunity. And if we can look at climate change as an opportunity to dedicate engineering and innovation to protecting ourselves and future generations and, with any luck, eventually reverse some of those changes, that's truly inspiring. Again, thank you, Sonia Kastner, and thank you, listeners, for checking out The Restless Ones. Be sure to look through our back catalog of conversations with leaders at the intersection of business and tech, and come back for more great discussions with future Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. Listener.